Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. Today's show, I thought it would be fun to take a look back at some of our favorite shows from CEO Exclusive. Everything's more fun with other people, so I asked the members of my team to choose their favorite show and to tell me why they liked it so much. Um, And the choices varied from interesting and to moving, and I'm excited to share excerpts from these shows with you. So I'll start with my longtime mentor and friend, Derek. Derek chose a show from December 2015 featuring Hugh Massey of DNA Behavior and Henry Ricciatelli of Next Marketing. And he enjoyed uh, the differences between the two successful CEOs and how despite their very different operating styles, they both found support in the same organization, EO, which is for high-level entrepreneurs. In the first clip, Hugh and Henry talk about their intriguing companies. So the area I work a lot in is in financial services, banks and insurance companies. And a big hot topic right now is client engagement. And it's not just about the initial connection and having a warm, fuzzy meeting with the client, but it's also about how do you continuously keep the clients engaged. And so that's meaning that technology is playing a greater role, um, providing ideas, solutions where, where your clients can keep on coming back and stay with your brand. And I'm seeing that's not just applicable in financial services, but that's out there for a lot of other businesses that want to build long-term intimate relationships with their clients. So just back up a little bit and tell us what, what is behavioral finance and this, this area that you play in? Behavioral finance is a, is a new area and an emerging area in, uh, fin- in the financial services arena. It, it really came... St- it, first originated probably in the 1960s with uh, some pioneering research on how uh, markets move and looking at uh, the behaviour of investors. And it's really right up till very recently, it's just been thought leadership. And it became famous in 2002 when a professor got a Nobel Prize for his work in that area. And But what I started to do in 1999 onwards is turning that research into actually uh, being measured insights on the human being into a technology platform and operationalizing behavioral finance to a level where it can be used across every department of uh, a financial institution or really any business. Right. So I guess the basic theory is that money makes people create act crazy and <laughs> makes people a little bit batty. And so you want to study and try to make sure that people who are dealing with money are acting at least somewhat rationally. Right. Every human being is irrational. But what, what, what you can do is predict what their irrationality is going to be at any point in time. And that's what we do. Mm. And make that operational for someone to know how someone will be irrational in certain circumstances and then know how to communicate and relate to them, reframe the information so that they actually then make a more rational decision. And is this true in your experience both for the financial advisors who are supposedly more educated and supposedly more disciplined and have been in the field for a while and their clients who they're serving. So you, you know, deal in the financial services. And is your work applicable both to the people providing the service as well as the customers that they're engaging, engaging with? Great question. You've been doing a lot of reading. Um, we often think of this just as the investor, but actually a bigger part of the equation really is the advisor because the investor eats the behavior of the, of the uh, advisor. And so the advisors face exactly the same biases 
that the clients do in those same circumstances. And and the big blind spot out there in the industry is they don't they they're not aware of that. They and they don't own up to that. And so what a lot of what we do is help educate the advisors to be aware of their own biases so that they will then handle the clients better. So what are the most important biases that you're seeing that really um, distort people's behavior when they're dealing with money? So there's one that's uh, quite well known out there. For example, people follow the herd. So you go to a dinner party and you see somebody else is making money and you jump in and do the, you jump in and do the deal. Um, and, and there's certain type. everyone will do that, but some people will do that more than others. And so it's, it's understanding uh, that it's others want to, want to be, want to be seen. Uh, you know, for, m- for me personally, I look at my portfolio more from taking a consolidated view. So I'm just looking at it, if I made an overall percentage rate of return, and if I have, then does it really matter uh, how I made it? But there could be nine dud decisions inside getting to that rate of return, and so why should there be nine dud decisions? Other people overtrade their account, others just follow fixed inde- indexes, um, and then the other big one that is 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 a lo- what's called loss aversion, and people are uh, you know more averse to losses than they should be, and they don't want to take that loss, and they hang on to the loser, and then they sell their winners. Mm-hmm. And so you know they're all different, all different biases that each of us have to some degree, but we have some of them that are stronger than others in, in, in each of us. And so, is some of what you do kind of get down into the individual level and? measure individual biases for individual people? So we measure it for every individual person, and that's then data that would sit inside, for example, with a bank that would sit inside their uh, CRM systems, their financial planning, wealth management systems, and even right down into their compliance management systems now so that the banks actually know what the suitability of the transactions being provided to that individual client. So it is very individual. Hmm. And... Um, as you think about applying this to an individual person, do you then uh, coach the person around or how is the information used? So I find out that I, I am disproportionately loss averse. What, how is that information used? So our systems will provide some of that coaching and uh, we've got some online tools like we built a tool called The Market Mood, which provides people with real-time feedback on how they might be feeling emotionally about the stock market when it's gone up or down uh, or their portfolio. But then also the, the, uh, the wealth managers, the advisors are trained in, in how to have that coaching discussion with the client to elicit out those feelings and get them to move to the right place. Right. So, Hen- Henry, you also deal with experiences, right? So, um, he was talking a little bit about client engagement and things like that. And that's, you know, your, your world. So, tell us a little bit about trends that you think are important for CEOs to be aware of in terms of um, experiential marketing and, and engaging people. We work in a, in a place where we help brands engage with consumers and allow them to try, taste, feel, live, understand, so that brands can make can engage with them, so they can make decisions for hopefully leading to a purchase or an action of some type. Uh, so the trends that we're seeing, first of all, the experiential marketing space is the fastest growing sector in the marketing space today. So it, it is clearly the leader. It's a proven proven environment. It's an improving environment because we allow brands to create, capture data, which is also important in today's world. We live in this data-driven world for decisions. Uh, we allow consumers to take action and have social sharing. So I've done something. I want to post it on Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram and tell my story. So find it exciting. It creates a platform of gamification. So some way to play, uh, for example, 
Uh, the United States Air Force, which is our single largest client, we handle all of their recruiting. So in the recruiting environment, their target is to draw in 18 to 25-year-olds to fill the positions that are the, not the pilots. So in that environment, we create traveling experiences, tractor trailers, trucks, different things that we set up that allow consumers to engage at air shows, high schools, uh, Super Bowls, various sporting events. And in that environment, we create ways for this target demo to, first of all, when they join the experience, they will be given an RFID tag. Mm. So everywhere they go in this experience, we will know their interaction. So if you are drawn to a mechanic display that about how they fix an F-16 or, or something of the like, we have a propensity to know that individual is more likely to be targeted towards the mechanic versus the guy that's going to be the infantryman or, or a different service. So we are able to follow them through the experience. We watch their interactions with different displays, whether it's an RFID display through Oculus goggles and in, in, in a virtual reality experience. We watch them in a, in a test of, of uh, strength that you compete against a different airman. Uh, we watch them in a... Uh, in an environment where there's actually another area where there's a series of 30 different um, uh, iPads. And based on the iPads that they pull are the different jobs that are available in the Air Force. And they will know what they interact with. So we're able to track all this data as part of that, that gamification. So they play different games that are part of this display. They look for their ability to have situational awareness, so their ability to be quick to, to deal with mm. uh, answers to questions, so a variety of different things. Um, we also, but anyway, back to the, 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 whole, the whole experience uh, of, of the uh, ex experiential marketing. We're, we're able to engage consumers in meaningful ways that allow brands to engage and in, in, in direct a embodiment of a brand that allows the consumer to make a decision, to, to drive to purchase, drive to action. So is in its highest, um, at the highest level, experiential marketing is about giving people an experience or an, a physical interaction with the brand and with the product? It, that is correct. We, but it works on all levels, business to consumer, business to employee, business to business. And we are able to take and whether it's an event of a principal financial where they're doing training with brokers, they're mm. creating events and golf tournaments where we create uh, a world where not just is about playing golf, but about learning about products. And, and, and as in Hugh says, about dealing with different environments of safety and, and planning and, and retirement and allowing people to understand that. And we use golf metaphors to do that uh, through training and education and playing the actual round of golf. Uh, in the case of Community Coffee, we're in retail uh, sampling coffee and giving away coupons so people can have trial because we're convinced as is community coffee when you learn about the history of the brand and the family connection and actually taste the product you're more likely to take it home and buy it and we've proven that over and over through our data uh, we show that through cdw which is a business platform the largest technology reseller in the world and with cdw we're entertaining government agencies education uh, universities and businesses in a traveling show that has a data center basically on wheels, but we also use it as a tailgate platform. So we take it to Super Bowls, we go to college football games, we go to universities, we go to corporate campuses. So every way where we're bringing the consumer to the experience and we're talking about the leadership that they have in technology. So we're able to create an environment everywhere and anywhere to allow consumers interact either with a service or a product or do something for an employee to make them proud of the brand. In this next clip from Hugh and Henry's show, 
We hear about EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, and how both of these men have participated in this for years. And Hugh is the president and Henry is the president-elect. Tell me a little about the culture of EO, you know, versus maybe some of the other peer groups in the Atlanta area. And has everybody founded their company? It's Yeah, to be part of EO, you must be a founder and managing partner of the business. Uh, the culture is interesting. It's, it's, um, I am inspired by it because when I first joined, I was, I was, it was, I'm going back 12 years. So I was eight years into my business and I had a lot to learn and it gave me great footing to understand that and grow the business. Uh, in fact, it's helped me take my company to Inc. 5,000 uh, six different times since I've been part of EO. And you, you have the resource available to you. And it's, it's a sharing group. So everybody cares about everybody's success. And you, you're amongst your competitors. You're amongst your, your peers. You're amongst people that you just learn so much from that have been there, have failed, have succeeded, have, have grown. Uh, and and it, it allows you to, to ask the right questions through different formats, through the chapter as a whole. And then within the chapter is called Forum. Forum is a peer group of, in ours case, it's eight, eight members. And we've been together for over 10 years since I joined EO. And it's my unofficial board. It's a group that I go to with my presentations once every couple months when I have a challenge and I present my case. And by presenting it, I actually have it half solved because I've already thought it through to be able to present it. But then they give me guidance, not in the sense of advice, but in the sense of what they, their experience has been. So I, this, I did this. And this is what I did in the situation to fix it. It's not my situation, but I can pull from all of their resources to allow me to come to the right conclusion. So that's the culture. It's a giving, sharing, caring, but it's also fiercely competitive because you, and you want to be the guy that's the top of the heap. So it gives you a great environment of peers to compete against in a, in a, in a different way. And I would add to what Henry said in that it's about entrepreneurial thinking and an entrepreneurial thinker, a person who started their own business, rubbed two sticks together, created a fire and made it work, is very different to a hard gun. And all of the other types of organizations uh, that, that, you can, that people could go to uh, as a CEO are more for the hard gun. And you know, they might be 38 years old and they became the CEO of an organization that was already at 10 million or 20 million or $50 million. Well, that's a very different human being to someone who started their their own business, took the risks, innovated. And so we're around people like us who are those innovative thinkers, the risk takers who are going to, as we grow our business, put it on the line time and time again. Whereas when you're the hired gun for somebody else, you don't do that. And it's a, you know, it's a different phase of business and it's a different type of thinking. The next favorite comes from Angie, my assistant extraordinaire. Angie chose a show featuring the executive directors of two nonprofit organizations, She is Safe and City of Refuge. Um, I think we all found this show really moving as we found out how these CEOs deal with different difficult subject matter from an inspiring standpoint. I wanted to also introduce Michelle Rickett, who just joined us a moment ago. Um, Michelle is the CEO of She is Safe. Um, who uh, supports women and in uh, around sex trafficking issues uh, and on an international level? So, uh, Michelle, welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so, we always start the show by talking with folks about the trends that are happening in their areas of expertise. So, can you tell us a little bit about um, what's happening with um, with sex trafficking uh, and in in uh, and at for um, she is safe? Well, I would say um, the world is awakening. 
to uh, the plight of women and girls around the world. Historically, uh, women and girls have been used as property in much of the developing world, and that was certainly how I awakened to the life calling that we have at She is Safe. It was uh, we were living uh, in East Africa and saw that girls were routinely kept out of school to work, marry, or be sold. And the more we delved into it, and this was in the mid-1980s, the more we realized it was a pervasive practice. Well, at that time, we didn't even have the vernacular for modern-day slavery or human trafficking. We just knew fundamentally this was an injustice against women and girls. Well, now the trend is the entire world has awakened to these issues and the devastation that it has not only on families but communities and countries around the world. So uh, the trend is an awakening, and I would say it's pretty much top-down because of the... Uh, the way that the United States has spearheaded the initiative of garnering the support of countries together, basically there's a report card that almost every country in the world has signed on to the Trafficking in Persons report card, and it's tied to human rights abuses, and so if countries get a better placement on that tier, um, they actually are eligible for more international aid. So there's a lot of motivation and collaboration, uh, but most of the trafficking occurs on a very grassroots level. So while we're happy to see the trend from the top down, um, I would say the, the next really huge trend that I'm so excited about is the youth young adults who are coming up a college age are just not willing to look away from global human trafficking or locally. They simply must do something. Uh, you see the end it movement in Atlanta where we saw, what, 30,000 uh, college age kids rocking the house at the Georgia Dome right. and saying, we're going to end human trafficking in our lifetime. It's a little grandiose, but I get it. Oh, everyone's in sense. So what that means is this movement is going to be growing and maturing. So that's an exciting trend. Yeah, certainly the um, discourse around sex trafficking has been a lot more, a lot louder uh, in the past few years. But is it that there has been more sex trafficking or is it it's growing or is it just that we now are paying attention to it and are willing to talk about it publicly? Well, I do believe that it's um, it has always been a huge issue globally, but with the advent of the Internet, it's easier for organized crime to do what they want to do. But really, last year, uh, the Trafficking in Persons report showed 37 million slaves worldwide, 80% uh, of those female. This year, they say it's 40 million, but they say it's not because of an increase. It's really because of better practices in doing the research. I call myself a life change junkie. So I get so excited when I see one person who has a pathway to a new life and they're accessing that. So when Bruce talks about 10,000 people who are served every year, better off. Well, for us, we know the studies show that if you change the life of one woman or girl, you're going to immediately impact 26 other individuals. So there's a multiplying effect to that goodness. Uh, we prevent, rescue, or restore about 15,000 individual women or girls every single year times 26. 
That's so exciting to me. And once a woman or girl has this sense of dignity and purpose and that she can uh, have a whole new life with the help of heaven, she will not go back, and her daughters will not be the ones on the street. So we've essentially affected the next generation as well. I, I can't think of anything more exciting. Our show on Axion Biosystems was the favorite of Andrea, a member of my marketing and social media team. She chose Axion because she was fascinated both by the work that Axion is doing and the implications on the way healthcare is managed in the future. She enjoyed the candid nature of the conversation with Tom and John about their path to success. So we sell systems and consumables. The, the system allows us to take measurements from these human cells, and the consumables what actually physically interfaces those cells and where the, the signal begins. So and it actually allows us to collect ECG-like signals in addition. So if you're familiar with ECG signals in the clinic and the doctor's office, you see blips that represent the heartbeat. Our instrument captures that same kind of signal with beating human cardiomyocytes. So inside these culture dishes, you'll have human cells. They'll physically beat. You can see them beating. And our instrument is detecting its electrical activity, just like a doctor would detect the electrical activity of a heart in the clinic. And so you sell the Petri dish? We sell the culture plate or the Petri dish and the system. Uh, So you culture the cells inside the Petri dish. It's a, a smart culture dish of sorts. And since that we have sensors embedded in the bottom of this dish that pick up that activity, just like a doctor put leads on your body to pick up the ECG, our culture dish has little mini micro-sized sensors in the bottom that pick up that activity. And so you're saying cells have a heart have a, a heartbeat. I, I mean, obviously they don't have a heart, but they have these these electric signals that you can measure. Exactly. And are the results that you get from them as good as if you were testing mice or testing? Uh, people? Uh, oftentimes they're better than animals. So animals aren't very predictive. And so that means that you can study a toxic effect in an animal that shows toxicity in the animal, but it's safe in the human and then vice versa, where uh, a compound will show safety in an animal, but it gets to the human. It, uh, in many cases, the animals do not predict what's going to happen in the human. And fortunately, to the other side of your question, it is very predictive of what happens in the clinic. So we see the same kinds of signal changes in the dish as you do in the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. And even more interesting is if it's patient-specific, if it's a patient with a particular heart condition, this cell technology and this device captures that symptom in a dish, and you can observe the same changes to that symptom and even figure out how to correct it in the dish before you apply it to the person. So you could literally um, start to develop therapies and, and um, treatment on a patient-by-patient basis because you would get that person's own blood and kind of break it down. Exactly. So Tom had highlighted the initial phase of this technology where it's most commercially used now is for research where we study how compounds affect the cells. I think Tom was alluding to the fact too that it goes further towards patient-specific therapies and then also another category of regenerative medicine where you're not using the cells to understand what they do, but using the cells to actually fix the human condition, using the cells as the drug. And here's another clip from Axion about their journey as two business owners. So as you look back over the, you know, the past seven years, what are some of the mistakes that you've made? And, you know, what would you, how would you tell people to do things differently, Jim? Yeah, I think I mentioned in the beginning, uh, and, and Tom spoke to this a little bit too, both of us are a bit naive about what it would take to start a company. So we had a lot of energy and enthusiasm and, and came from two very different organizations uh, with very different kinds of thoughts. So I I came from a a grad school environment that was very 
free-spirited, creative. Uh, Tom came from public company where there's a lot of structure and discipline. And when those two things met in the beginning, along with a mix of uh, naive understanding of what it was going to take to start the company, it was uh, a challenge, actually, to to reconcile our views of the world with the reality. But once we did that, it, it became quite a fun operation. So I think initially, it's not mentioned, we underestimated how much money it would take. I uh, had to to come to understand very obvious things in hindsight, like the difference between a prototype and a product, and also uh, things that are necessarily technologically risky. Those things don't mean that they're fast to implement. So from a grad school perspective, you're always focused on what's novel or what's difficult. So I made some poor assumptions about uh, things that weren't novel or difficult, but actually very challenging to implement. So does that make sense? Well, could you give us an example? Uh, one is software. So the, uh, the, the, the core technology that we developed is in the hardware and in the microsensors. And we worked out a lot of complex problems to be able to interface sensors to cells and to develop hardware that could facilitate that. And our thought at the time was, well, now we just glue it together with software. And I really came to appreciate how complicated and how enabling actually software could be. So that was an example where we, we underestimated the effort by uh, easily 18 months of what it was going to take to get the software to catch up with the, the, the core technology. Mm. I think to, to just another thing is that neither one of us had any experience in the life science tools industry. And I think um, we, what we ma made up for in lack of experience, we had plenty of confidence. And so, um, you know, so we had to wade through it. And, and, you know, both of us are pretty determined guys and resourceful. And so getting to the right people and getting an understanding of it, um, we, we managed. But it took, took longer. And it would have been nice to have access to someone that had the experience in this business to be able to say, this is the right direction. Maybe you want to think about this. Here's the wrong direction. So I think that that played a role in us being a little bit slower to market than we should have been. Mm -hmm. So let's say, you know, you're going to uh, commercialize your next business. What are you going to do next time to make sure that you get the assumptions right in the beginning? Raise a lot more money. To start. <laughs> uh, I think we'd, we'd think more about the end too and the market and the customers that we're, we're servicing. And also one of the things we've tremendously benefited from is establishing a network with partner companies and collaborators. So Actually, uh, getting connected with stem cell suppliers really changed everything for us in the beginning. So actually identifying where the industry interest was and how that related to our product and having those those peers and friends and colleagues in similar businesses really helped change things around for the appeal of our product and how it was used. As listeners know, this show is on Business Radio X. And so I asked both of the partners at Business Radio X, Stone and Lee, what their favorites were. Stone chose the interview with Honeycomb Cargo. He was inspired by the deep respect and strong working relationship between our guests, Joe and Brad, and by their shared commitment to a brilliant idea fueled by a genuine desire to serve people and save lives by implementing changes in a long-standing system for hazmat shipping. We think um, in, the, in the transportation of hazmat, um, we've, we've got an opportunity to really be disruptive. There is an existing infrastructure that's about 45 years old in terms of design and architecture. And we found that it's, it's um, exposing the environment and the communities along the rail line to some serious risk. Um, in probably most of the um, listening audience is, is not very familiar with the hazmat transport 
environment. But if you've followed the media in the last few years, there have been a number of horrendous disasters, sorry, occurring um, across the country and, and across the North American continent. Um, one in particular a couple of years ago in uh, Lac Magentic, Canada, in Quebec, um, took 47 lives. Was and that the big explosion? It was a huge explosion. Right. And it was really unfortunate. It was something that could be avoided. And the net of it is that there are a number of tanker cars, 300,000 or more of these tanker cars traveling the rail line today, and they all have an inherent design flaw. And that design flaw is, if you look at, I'm, I'm going to use a bottle as an example. If you use um, uh, a bottle as a single entity. Plastic bottle. Right, the yeah. plastic bottle. Or in the case of these tanker cars, it's a 30,000-gallon metal vessel. Mm -hmm. And it's a single entity, meaning that when it crashes and it penetrates, 30,000 gallons are exposed. And when you're pulling hundreds of them, it's, it's millions of gallons. And if it's toxic and gets into the oil, into the uh, air, into the water, it's extremely dangerous, obviously. If it's explosive, a flammable three liquid-like crude oil, it's, it's devastating. Huge explosions, loss of life, significant damage to the environment. So we looked at that, and um, as we were trying to solve that problem, we started thinking back about you know, ways that uh, other problems have been solved by thinking out of the box. And the net of it is we came up with a solution that's a distributed architecture. So rather than having 30,000 gallons in a single entity, we have a distributed architecture of multiple smaller elements in that same aggregate of 30,000 gallons in an intermodal design. So we've got it um, in boxes, if you will, that can be placed directly on a flatbed rail car. So today's technology is so pumped. I'm assuming that's a honeycomb. That's the honeycomb concept. That's yeah. right. <laughs> so it's really a combination of three elements. There's a there's a distributed architecture in a cargo hold, and then there's a shock absorbing element that goes around it. So if you think about, um, so it, is this only good in uh, in rail situations, or is it good for other for um, other movement of cargo as a well? Hu huge uh, applications, well beyond. We originally started focusing on crude oil because that's what was driving um, uh, the attention in the media, and it's a huge problem. But we realized quickly that it's any hazardous material, ethanol. Um, so companies like companies like um, Clorox mm -hmm. or Georgia Pacific or Dow Chemical, anybody who's moving any kind of material that might be toxic or hazardous would be interested in something like this. Mm -hmm. um, so not only the rail lines and, and the people who are actually moving the product, but the end users mm -hmm. or the producers of those solutions. So, Now, Brad, do you have a, a sense of what the decreased risk is? So what do you have a sense of of if uh, companies that were transporting these hazardous materials were using this honeycomb um, structure instead of the single um, vessel structure? How many of these disasters, or how much like how much less likely it is is it for an accident to happen? Well, yeah, we, we haven't reached proof of concept at this point, but based on some of the, I guess we've done our own tests, our own field tests. And based on those field tests, we have seen significant decreases. Um, so imagine, um, imagine that you have a case of, you know, we, we were talking about one, one bottled water, but imagine you had a case of bottled water. 
and that would be considered a, a distributed architecture, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, instead of having one big, huge five-gallon jug, right? And, and then imagine some sort of impact on that case of water. What happens to those vessels as you have that impact? They basically spread, correct? And so you might have... Uh, something that punctures maybe one, maybe two of those bottles, but it doesn't doesn't affect all of them. And, and as a matter of fact, some of the vessels themselves protect the other vessels because the force is shoving into those other vessels and pushing them out of the way, correct? So if, if you take that concept and, and apply it, uh, it basically protects, in, in my mind, it protects probably 90 to 95% of the cargo at that point. And that's a significant increase. When you're talking about one vessel, which you lose 30,000 gallons, and then where you could protect, you know, as much as 25 of that or more, uh, that's a significant increase. And imagine that, that, that that's a money savings, but that's also an environmental saving there, too. Both Brad and Joe see the idea and its implementation as something bigger than just them. This clip looks into their relationship and their faith and how that faith is helping them in their business. And so for us, this idea that Joe has with Honeycomb Cargo, we call it a god size idea. Um, and the reason being is because, just like he said, there is a design that's been around for 45 years and it hasn't been changed and there are reasons for that. But You mean the original kind of single unit? The single entity, yes. There are reasons for that, and and I won't go into those reasons because I don't know all of them, but it it, it has served for 45 years. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a time for a change and that there isn't a better way to do it. But in order for those changes to happen, there are big hurdles. And it's it's something that is quite larger than two guys, you know, two humble dudes can, can really handle. When it comes down to it, it's something that in my mind, that God would have to allow to happen. It would have to be his idea and his plan, and that's why we call it a God-sized idea. And so, um, you know, for us, we really see that this is bigger than us and that, you know, God is working in our lives and, and in our business, and he's opening doors and he's creating these these relationships, these connections. He's, he's given the idea to Joe, and, you know, I've partnered with him because I see it as a God-sized idea and something that, um, you know, that, that is helpful for people, first of all, because it's protecting people. Um, you know, we, we love our common man. We love each other, and we want to serve each other, and we want to make life better for everybody, and we want to protect everybody. And we think there's a, a great way to do business, and it's a great way to protect our environment that God's created. There's a great way to protect each other. And also, there's a great way that that Joe's created that also is, is very cost savings for, and so it's a, it's a great business idea also because it's, uh, it's lucrative and it's going to save businesses a lot of money. Yeah. The way and we're doing this. So it's a beautiful idea and it's a God size idea. Yeah. And to, to me, it's also when you have those, those kinds of businesses that serve customers, you know, serve the environment and then also, you know, create a profit for, um, for the business as well. I mean, that's where you kind of get that, that sweet spot that makes, that makes business, you know, really kind of serve everybody. Um, It's it's kind of that, that mad magic that happens in business that doesn't happen anywhere else. And so Joe, you were going to say something? No, I I was just going to reiterate that we are simply shepherds and it is a God sized idea. Um, 
so uh, right on. I, I agree completely. Yeah. yeah. And so d- how did you meet each other? And and obviously there have been a lot of fairly deep conversations that have happened between the, the two of you and you're from very different walks of life. Brad, you're um, a, a musician and, you know, band owner and, you know, Joe, you're a regular guy from Chicago. I'm a regular guy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's good. And we also happen to be neighbors. So That's that right. Was, that was one way. And to by the way, that. I'm a regular guy too. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, but how how did you meet each other and and you know come to you know the 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 band guy end up in a business that's doing producing cargo you know cargo materials and things like that how did how did that happen well we, like joe we, said we're we, neighbors yeah we are neighbors yeah. uh, we yeah. just live down the street from each other and uh, i don't know if you can tell from joe's personality but he's extremely outgoing uh my personality believe it or not even though i was in the spotlight for you know many years of my life uh i'm very much an introvert and i very much like to you know kind of be with my family and be to ourselves. Um, <laughs> I do like one-on-one. So we have a, you know, a, a great one-on-one relationship. But when I get in, actually, when I get in a, in a room where I had, have to work a room, so to speak, and shake hands, uh, it's almost debilitating for me. Uh, it's, it's very challenging. I, I call it kind of a, an energy sucker because I really have to get myself up to, to go out there and really, and go for it because I'm a lot better one-on-one because I am an introvert. But Joe is quite the opposite. Joe knows everybody. And nobody is is a stranger to Joe, uh, and it's a beautiful gift from God. To be honest, um, just see how he interacts with everybody. He kind of brings everybody in our neighborhood together in our in our group, and we all, you know, when when there's you know gatherings and get togethers, we get together in his driveway, you know, and play cornhole and you know just hang out and eat food and and have fun and talk. And he's kind of that guy he's like the connection point to all the neighbors and everything and there are many neighbors i might not have ever met because of my you know my condition i guess if you want to call it being an introvert you know and i'm fine being you know in my it's, own little it's space not a, it's not an illness it's not an illness it's not it feels like it believe me <laughs> but yeah. um so you know so of course joe was going to going to connect with me because he connects with everybody and then through joe i've been able to connect with with everybody in the neighborhood so that's kind of how it started but you know for me i came off the road uh seven years ago and that was it was actually very difficult um uh, i started touring and traveling uh, professionally when i was a teenager um, and I'm 44 now. Um, so a majority of my life was on the road and anybody who's spent their life on the road and, and Joe spent a lot of time on the road, that's for sure as a, as a salesman. And, um, when you spend your life on the road and then you come off the road, uh, you got to find a new normal, uh, because the road, especially being out there and being gone all the time, it, it's a completely different lifestyle. It's a completely different way to look at life. And uh, so that was a big challenge for me to come off the road. Uh, it was a blessing to get to be home. I have four girls and to be with those girls and watch them grow up instead of being gone all the time and missing everything. And my wife having to be a Sunday widow where she'd go to church alone, you know, because I was out, you know, playing uh, shows on the weekends and things. Um, it was a big challenge, you know, and then to integrate into, you know, industry and into into business in a different realm from just being home all the time. 
big changes for me. Um, but I think with Joe, I think that connection is an easy connection. You know, it, it kind of, it helped me sort of bridge the gap between the two. You know, it took a while, but it, it's helped me kind of bridge the gap into, you know, a new normal. And uh, it's been a beautiful thing for me, that's for sure. And and so it, it sounds to me like, Brad, you, you chose Joe, not so much the technology, that it was more about um, knowing that you were going to be on a great team. Well, yeah, it's a relationship. You know what I mean? When you're in a band, you know, and and really anybody who's... It, it, a band is a successful business. Uh, some of them are successful. Some of them aren't. There are a lot of bands who don't make some it. Some businesses are successful. Some businesses aren't. Absolutely. But the things, the challenges that businesses run into, a lot of times it's not because uh, they didn't create a great product that everybody wanted. A lot of times businesses implode. And they implode because of, you know, difficulties in relationships. Uh, they implode because uh, there's, you know, there's there's these challenges um, that come with uh, just being involved with people day to day. Well, a band is kind of the melting pot of that. And, and it's that on 10. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, basically, you're married to, in our case, it was four other guys. There were five of us. And you're married to their families also. There's a tight relationship. And you're with these people more than you're with your, your wife and your kids. And, and then you throw uh, you throw fame, you throw money, uh, you throw the rigors of being out on the road and maybe not necessarily being grounded all the time and having people serve you and things like that. You throw that into it and it can be, become a very crazy place. And that's why a lot of bands don't make it. A lot of them, you know, you hear about bands breaking up or they make it a lot of years, but there's always something going on between a couple of the members. They can't ever get along. You know, businesses are, are, are very much the same way. They're about relationships. And so me and Joe have a, a great relationship with each other. We both believe in each other. We both have, uh, have faith. And we know this is bigger than us. And so that's really where it has to start, a successful relationship. And then we have something that we're passionate about. And so we can get behind that and trust each other and move forward and hopefully accomplish something. Lee, also from Business Radio X, picked the show with Michael Blake of Arpeggio Advisors as his favorite. Lee said, I think his story of moving from a steady corporate environment to being an entrepreneur is inspiring to a lot of people, especially at the end of the year when people are reflecting on their careers and their life. I agree. So here's a clip from that show talking about Mike's industry and about making the move to leave his secure position as the head of valuation at a large accounting firm here in Atlanta to hang out his own shingle. So if you were going to sit down and have this conversation with one of our CEO listeners who's in the middle market and educate them on how to build value in their company, um, and it's not their management team, where would you tell them to look? Well, I'd tell them to find what they think is an awesome company with a bad management team. That would be you know, the easiest place to make an acquisition is an undervalued asset where the management team is not doing a great job and therefore it's, it's obscuring the value of uh, potentially of a uh, of a much more valuable asset. The second is to think about um, what can you break, where can you be disruptive. You know, when I hung up my own shingle two and a half months ago, it's been a very interesting journey of um, self learning and learning what what am I good at, what am I lousy at, and and. Uh, why would anybody hire me to do evaluation as opposed to anybody else? There's some very good practitioners 
here in town across the country. What it's arrogant for me to hang out my own shingle and say that somebody should hire me instead of somebody else. Um, but I think the answer in any of those cases is to think about how do you innovate, how do you differentiate? And I think too many companies concede the commoditization story, right? Like if you're in a commodity, if you're actually making a commodity, great, go ahead and concede that. I'm, I'm not going to argue with you. But in professional services, I saw, I see it in accounting. People just say, well, accounting is a commodity. No, it's not. They're good accountants. They're lousy accountants. <laughs> They're accountants who are smart and can provide good business advice. They're ones that shouldn't advise people on how to run a lemonade stand, right? But people, I, I think the companies that can see commoditization are the ones that wind up being mediocre and set that and therefore set their high bar, maximum potential as mediocrity. So getting back to the question you actually asked, for the mid-market CEO that's looking to, bat, to, to build value, lock yourself in a room, lock yourself and your management team in a room, lock some of the craziest people that you know in a room and get the craziest ideas out there and brainstorm. Have a couple of beers while you do it if you want to, whatever it takes, that there are no dumb ideas and, and, and think about how you can innovate and then create a culture that says, um, that celebrates failure in innovation. That you're gonna reward the person who's willing to step out there and try to make something happen more than the person who never tries, but they just sort of keep on keeping on. And what about if somebody wants to pursue some sort of an organic growth strategy? For whatever reason, they don't wanna do an acquisition. So the organic, again, the organic growth strategy, I think needs to be through innovation. I mean, look, there are lots of ways you can do it. You can throw money at the problem, right? You want to you hire more salespeople, you want more sales channels, by all means, throw money at the problem. Um, chances are that that's going to be kind of like pushing string. If, if you really want to grow organically, then give people a reason to buy your stuff other than, uh, rather than your competitions. That's differentiation, that's innovation, and that's stepping out and creating identity and a willingness to be wrong and a celebration again of trying and, and the failure. I mean, that's, you, know, you look at Google's secret sauce, they celebrate failure and they are not afraid to put a bullet in something when it's not working, right? Remember Google Glass is going to take over? Like we were supposed to, two years ago, we would have had this whole thing with Google Glass and those silly things over our eyes and uh, we all would have looked like new age pirates basically, right? Haven't heard a thing of that since. They killed it. That's okay. They didn't kill everybody. They didn't fire everybody who's on the Google Glass team. I said, okay, here's another thing I want you to work on. Brian, who is a listener, which makes me so happy, wrote in and said that he chose one of our Vistage interviews from the Vistage Executive Summit in November, Will Novi. He chose Will because Will tells, talks about telling stories. And we all love a good story. Will is an absolutely eloquent speaker on finding and building your tribe and telling your story. Uh, what am I going to talk to people today? I'm going to talk about, I think, the biggest issue they face, which is that if you look at what is happening in practically every market and due to social networks and the internet, what I think those are doing, we can make all sorts of predictions about what's the next Facebook or what is the next Twitter or whatever it might be. But I think the core takeaway of what's happening in terms of social media and the internet is that it's distilling excitement, okay? That's what's happening in the world. So when you say distilling, it's like separating non-excitement from true, genuine, hardcore, 
pure adrenaline excitement. Yeah, you think about whatever you're excited about in your life, whatever we were just talking about CrossFit, right? Let's say you're into CrossFit now, but let's say you're into the idea of CrossFit, which is a fitness craze or whatever you want to call it, a fitness cult, we call it, a few years ago. You would have, uh, you know, talked to your friends about it. And then you might have got a book from the library. And then you, you'd, you'd taken you 20 steps to connect with that excitement, right? What the internet and social media has done is it's one click to the most exciting version of whatever you're interested in. And what I think every business needs to realize is you are now competing to be that one click. And if I click on you and I get there and I don't have an incredibly powerful sense of this is it, this is where that excitement is, this is where I'm going to have that really strong connection to my tribe, I'm going to click somewhere else and I'm never coming back. You know, the painful truth is you're either going to be that click for your tribe or you're not. And so to look into the world as a business, as an organization, as a nonprofit and say, to say, who is my tribe? When, when they go and do that one click, are they coming to us? And when they do it, do they have this powerful visceral reaction of, okay, I've arrived where I want it to be. Okay. And it might be a tribe that's latent, that's waiting to be identified, or it might be a tribe that's already out there. But unless you deliver on that as a brand, you're not going to succeed. So what I'm talking to people about today is, what is the journey from wherever you are now to being that one click where you're so strongly aligned with your tribe that they're going to going to have that powerful experience when they come to you? And I think that's true for huge brands, tiny brands, small church groups, doesn't matter who you are. Tell me, though, I'm a dollars and cents girl, mm -hmm. right? So this is all very esoteric. I love you people, you dollars and cents people. Are we going to talk spreadsheets on the radio? This is going to be agony. Yeah, exactly. Um how does this impact the profit of a company? It sounds very esoteric, you know, tribe and yeah. culture and following and excitement. And yeah. Okay. Well, I'll answer it in a tangential way. When, when you think in terms of dollar and cents, the thing you're going to do is basically say, okay, we have consumers. We need to sell to consumers at a certain margin, right? You're going to start going down that road of breaking this into dollars and cents and things that go in the spreadsheet, ROI on thinking about brand. And it's always been, I think, the job of people who are interested in brand strategy to get get folks over the hump of what is going to be my return in investing on brand or whatever that might be. And what I can say what I would say is just calling people consumers, just thinking in terms of how do I profit from my consumers, that initial orientation is going to put you in precisely the wrong place to build the kind of tribe I'm talking about, right? It's no longer really the case that you have consumers, staff, and leadership. It is who is the group of people that are going to get so excited about this brand that they're not going to worry. But they become insensitive to cost, right? You ask, we were just, again, going back to the CrossFit example. I went to, I'm, I'm an avid CrossFitter, right? I arrive here to speak today. And before I do that, I want to get my workout in and go to a CrossFit box. Where do you live? Uh, Portland, Oregon. Okay, so you right? flew in. So I fly in last night. I get up this morning, you know, I go online, I just type CrossFit into Google Maps, find the nearest good-looking CrossFit gym. And you were jet-lagged, too. I'm jet-lagged. I jump on Uber. I don't know how much it cost me to get there. I do know how much it cost me to get back. And I didn't care that it cost me 25 bucks or whatever to do my workout. I'm price-insensitive because I'm with my tribe in that place of excitement. Did you get a good right? workout? I go, I'm sore as heck. Yeah, I got a great workout. <laughs> Let's back up to something that you mentioned. You said that companies that, you know, miss the, miss the mark on the one click, you know, yep. don't get a second click. Where does this allow room for, for failure? Because 
I mean, certainly I feel like people in my business have clicked like 15 times and like fully, <laughs> finally like, come to you. They finally like found something that resonates. So, you know, no, I can identify with that. I think, I think, uh, getting at the question of failure. And I certainly think what we all have to understand is, okay, when I say you have to be that first click, you have to be that first click for your tribe. You don't necessarily have to be the number one, uh, brand in your sector. Because there are, there are number two tribes too who are looking for the number two price point or whatever else it is. It's not it's not that you're failing if you aren't the number one. But you have to understand your tribe's needs and those price point type issues, and then you have to really resonate with them. And if you're not resonating with them, you sh- you should know. You know, people ask me kind of like, how do I know when I've got to the tribe level? And I'm basically like, look, when you've reached that level, the stories you're going to hear from your so-called consumers and your staff are going to be so powerful that you're not going to have to ask me this question anymore, right? If you're asking the question, have I generated that kind of excitement? Do we have a tribe yet? Then you don't. You haven't got there yet. But the journey to get there is incremental and every step you take in the right direction will get you to the right, you know, will help get you to the right place. So you just, you just sit people down and you say, okay, do you understand who you are, what you do and why it matters as a brand? Can you answer those questions? And I know within two minutes of answering, asking that question, whether or not the CEO I'm talking to really understands you know, who they are, what they do, and why it matters, and why I'm going to get excited about it. I'm going to close today's show on favorites with the show that moved me the most. It was one of our interviews from the Executive Summit in November. And for me, it doesn't take a lot of introduction. But I will say that Kevin Gosnell um, exemplifies someone who has taken every step to be a great leader in his business. And that his willingness to use his skills as a business owner for a larger cause is incredibly moving. Kevin was diagnosed earlier this year with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, which is certainly fatal. Uh, And he has chosen to face that diagnosis with immense courage and to use that as an opportunity to create a legacy and a solution for future people who were diagnosed with the disease. Here's Kevin. Good afternoon. We're broadcasting live from the Vistage Executive Summit in Boston. And I'm delighted to have with me in this segment, Kevin Gosnell, who is a Vistage member, and he's also speaking this afternoon. Yes. Um, Kevin, would you just give us a little bit of a a taste of your remarks for those who are listening but can't um, be here today? Regarding? The whole thing. Just tell us a little bit about your presentation, a little sn- snippet of your presentation. Yeah, um, my presentation is about um, about uh, my journey through being diagnosed with ALS, um, and and kind of kind of how it started, how how I kind of migrated through it, uh, the road that I I had to go down, and the decisions that I had to make, and then the journey that I took um, in order to to try to make a difference along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and really, really trying to get people to understand um, the different possibilities and options that you have when you're faced with, uh, with daunting decisions and, 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 hard, and hard tasks to make. Hmm. When were you diagnosed? I was actually, uh, it, was, uh, it was March of this year is when I, I was pretty much told that they think I had ALS. The official diagnosis came in May, but I, uh, I, I pretty much had an inclination that uh, I had ALS in March. And how, uh, how long have you been a Vistage member? Uh, seven years. Oh, okay. I was uh, seven years uh, as a Vistage member, and I, I loved Vistage. Vistage. 
it uh, did a tremendous amount for me and as far as helping me grow myself and and, and build and, and build my business and and just some tremendous uh, relationships that I built with the guys we had uh, had a, have have a tremendous team of guys there and how has your participation in your business changed over the past few months as you have you know been diagnosed and then you know are kind of you know kind of going through the implications and the the consequences of the diagnosis yeah. you know i think one of the one of the things that i learned when i was first went to visage was you know the power of building a great executive team and um i was one, i'm one of those people that um when i i see a problem you know I, and I, I try to find the solution i implement it relatively quickly i think that's uh that's one of the things I've always done. Every Vistage meeting, I would come back with one or two things, and I would truly implement it. And um, so um, I had an executive team when I went to Vistage, but not as strong as it needed to be. And the saying was always, you know, if you got hit by a bus, could the, could the team run the company? And when I first was at Vistage, I would say the answer was no. Uh, but as I, as I began to grow and develop the team and bring in certain people, um, I, my goal was to make it uh, as though if I ever did get hit by a bus, the company would be fine and, uh, and they didn't need me. And um, uh, I achieved that. Um, I, I was in, I was, uh, you know, I owned, I, in my, I owned a parking lot reconstruction business and I was a partner in one in Carolina and, a, and one in Texas. And I was in the process of actually merging them all together and I was going to be the CEO of the new company and we were going to buy, buy some other companies and merge it all in. So I was in the process of putting that all together when I, I started to have the symptoms of ALS. Um, so between that going on and just the fact of building a, a strong executive team, when I was diagnosed, I was able to just walk away from the business. And I'm happy to say the guys have done a tremendous job running the company since I've been gone. Did you sell it? Um, I'm, I'm in the process of, uh, of, of working that out. Yeah, I haven't yet, but I'm in the process of working that out. Mm. And how is your Vistage group? supported you through this through this process um i mean the guys have been great um they uh as as um i decided to go ahead and do something different so um one of the things i did was when i got diagnosed i started to research and i realized that um you know some of the greatest als doctors in the world are right here in boston i mean boston is the as i'd say the medical capital of the of the united states mm -hmm. like our met our I, I call it the medical Silicon Valley. And um, as I began to research, I found out that um, the top doctors in the world are right here in Boston. And uh, I began to go and meet with them all. And uh, I've always had the ability to, to bring out the best in people and get people to come together and build teams. That's, that's, that's probably one of the assets that I, that I have. Um, so I wanted to use that. And as I met with all these, with all these, uh, famous doctors, I started to ask them, Hey, what would happen if we all got together as a team? If you guys got together in one room and we started to work as a, as a unified team and we, you know, we had doctors from Harvard, MGH, UMass Medical. Bob, Bob Brown is the doctor from UMass Medical. He's considered the godfather of ALS. And then, uh, the godmother of ALS is Marich Sakovitz from, uh, Mass General. And, um, and, and we have a non, a non, uh, a biomedical company that's a nonprofit run by a tremendous guy named Steve Perrin. So uh, Nazim Atasi is uh, is another tr famous guy uh, at UMass. I mean, uh, Mass General, and also um, he teaches at Harvard. So among some other other doctors, and we all got together, and I got them all together in a room, and um, and we first meeting was a little tense, but as that continued to, to move on, they they one hour meeting turned into three. They cleared their calendars. 
these people travel around the world. They're busy people. And um, they came together the following week, and uh, it, it, it was a domino effect. And uh, we were able to um, to get them to come together as a team, get all the institutions to agree to be able to combine all the logos together. And uh, we're, we're launching a group called ALS One, which is really the top doctors in the world to come together to to agree on a science path to try to goals to try to have a treatment in the next four years and and um, and, and do some tremendous things. So, so the my Vistas group was great in the process of me doing this. They would come, they came down my house a few times and brainstormed with me and did some white pads and helped me figure out some things to do along the way. Um, uh, and, and so it was, a, it was a tremendous, like having a little executive team uh, to help build this. It sounds to me like you naturally took all the skills that you have as a CEO and started to apply them in the situation. And was that a natural process or did it take some prompting? How did that that evolution um, yeah. take place? Because it seems to me that you just kind of just went at it. And yeah. most people would be at home under the table right. crying. Right. I mean, you have two. You, I feel like you have two options when you get this. One is um, curl up in a ball, go home and wait to die. Right. Um, and, and I fault no one for doing that. It's a horrific disease, extremely hot every day to get moving in the right direction. And the other option is how do I take the skill set that I have and how do I move the needle forward? How do I do something with the time that I have left, which isn't a lot of time? But how do I how do I do something with that? And I, I have always been a student of self-development and leadership my entire life. And I've read over a thousand books. I've been to numerous seminars. I've had countless coaches and mentors. Um, that, that have helped me develop those skills. So I think my just my natural instinct was, you know, I, I'm not going to curl up, go home and just wait to die. And, and I also, I have, I have three teenage boys at home, um, Scott, Jake and Joe, tremendous young men. And, I, you know, I looked at it too, you know, what, what, what's the last lesson that I could give them or, or coach them through? And I, I felt like this this could be a way to show strength and courage and grace. Mm. And, and, and that's helped drive me a lot too. One of the things um, I, I have noticed in my work with middle market CEOs, and it's, it's, not, it's, it's a conversation that kind of sits underneath the surface. But this notion that um, I think being in business, having your own company, did you start your company? I did. Yeah, yeah. I've been 30 years. I've, all I've been in small business since I was uh, 18 years old. Takes a tremendous amount of faith. And I don't know faith in whatever, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. not a religious conversation, just faith, right? right? The, the ability to take an idea, take a vision, and then sit in the gap until that vision begins to, to manifest and mm -hmm. deal with all the challenges and all the frustrations and mm -hmm. all the failures or whatever, mm -hmm. until that, that thing becomes something that you can point to where you can have other people take it over, right? Um, and I'm wondering if you want to comment on that, like, you know, the, the faith that it takes yeah. to have a business and develop that faith and nurture it for 30 years. Right. And then applying that to this new thing. Right. And, and I've been involved in, in various different businesses too. And I think it's a belief system, right? And I, I think that you just, you know, you either believe you can do it and you're going to do it or you don't. And, and I always have had a belief system and no matter what I put my mind to or work towards, I mean, the path's not always clear and easy. But I always find a way to, to, to make it happen. I've always been an extremely goal-driven, time management person. And, 
and I, and I think because of that, I, I just always believed I could get something done. And when I looked at this, I mean, I, I, I'm 13 months into my first symptom with this, and typically it's two years. So, you know, I have about a year left, uh, may, maybe a little longer, but in general, that's what it is. And uh, so when I, when I, you know, it was only about three months ago, four months ago, I, I took this up because I, I had to get some business things out of the way before I moved on to something else. And, um, you know, I just, I have a belief that, that, that I can do, I can do it. I can bring people together and, and make a difference. So I, I think, I think, I think when you believe in something, then you, then your behavior goes again, you know, starts to align with what the belief is. And then you put systems and processes and, and, and do things uh, to get the results. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, if you have this, you know, faith and we're not going to talk about it any in any other context but let's say that you have the seed of faith how is that helping you with your diagnosis or not helping you as the case may be um well there's nothing can help me with the diagnosis right and if we want to talk about faith from a religion standpoint i have a lot of faith there and that helps me through 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 this um and um but you know, there's, unfortunately, there's no treatment, no cure. I mean, you basically go home. I mean, that's just the way it is. There's no medicine. There's no surgeries. There's no nothing to do. Um, so, um, it, so, the, so you don't, you don't, there's not a lot of hope, so to speak. Um, so that, that's just where that lies. Um, and, uh, I know anything that I'm doing right now is certainly not going to help me. And I, I don't expect it to help me. But maybe if the next person, um, down the road that gets diagnosed with this and has a family and wife and kids uh, won't suffer the same outcome of the same fate that, that I'm going to suffer. Hopefully I can help move the needle forward. And I, uh, I I know the team that's been created for this ALS1, they've already done some amazing things. So it's promising. Mm. And what is your vision for ALS1? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, two, another thing was created is called ALS Nights, which, which ALS One is a campaign of ALS Nights. Because, because as I was getting the doctors together, I wanted to create something to help fundraising. When I started to look into the fundraising world, originally I wanted, my, my intention was, let me just jump in with another fundraiser and let me use my business skills and acumen to make it, make it better. As I met a lot of them, they weren't interested in the help because it's a lot of small, fractured little fundraising groups. And, um, I saw a tremendous amount of waste there too, right? So imagine all of these small little fundraising groups, these little families um, creating all these fundraisers, which is all a great thing, but it's earmarked for maybe one specific doctor or one specific hospital. They don't really know um, where the money's truly being invested. And think of the duplication, right? Duplication in marketing, database work, administration, all those specific things, and no real shared, shared database. So the first thing was to create uh, ALS Nights, which is a shared database, and other families can join in and bring their families in. Um, and I, I created five basic pillars to align people. One was you're committed until there's a cure. The second one uh, is that you have to do at least one fundraiser a year. Third is that you'll display the ALS and Nights and uh, ALS One logos wherever needed. Um, you'll you'll call to arms uh, as as needed. And five is you'll be mindful of other ALS families uh, in your community. And when I made that simple platform, people could relate to it and understand. So we had 700 people join relatively quickly that were connected to the disease. We've had six fundraisers. This is all in 90 days. All this happens in after 90 days. We had six fundraisers. We raised over $200,000. Wow. We've got 22 in the pipeline. And um, we'll probably raise a half a million dollars by, uh, by January 1. And a lot of it's through small businesses because that's my world. And 
being a small business owner, I know when, when the CEO gets behind anything, the company rallies behind it, they have the resources, they have the team. And really from a small business standpoint, right, they can take, they can leverage their, their client base, their customers get to come in and see the great they're doing. And then the whole company comes together. And, uh, that, that's what I've, uh, I've seen happen. And it's been, uh, it's been tremendous, uh, tremendous. And we're asking businesses to do that and, and, to have like a three-year commitment to getting behind it and doing it. And um, so I'm obviously a big fan of small business. I think it drives the country. And I think a small business gets behind anything, they can fix anything. Nice. And in terms of your remarks and your presentation for this afternoon, is there anything else that you want to add? Anything else that you want to share with listeners that you haven't already told us? <laughs> yeah, I think that, um, you know, I think as CEOs and leaders, um, we all have problems that we have to face every single day. And I, I hope that the talk um, and what I've done inspires people to maybe go down that road uh, that is a little bit more difficult and make that tough decision and push the company in the right direction so they can continue to grow themselves and grow the people around them to do to do something, something special. Because, you know, when you have a problem in business, you know, you're not curling up and dying, but by not doing anything, in essence, you know, you're, you're stagnant. Or you can push things forward and go out there and try to make, make something happen. And um, I hope, I hope uh, in the venue today that small businesses uh, see the story that I've done, see what I've done, and um, maybe they leave today and, and push the envelope or make that tough decision that they're, they're waffling on. Mm -hmm. Have you given any thought to your legacy? Um, I have, I have, mm -hmm. and I think my legacy is my kids. Mm -hmm. I think that's it. I, I've, um, I've lived an immeasurably blessed life. Um, I have no regrets and I have nothing even that I, I want to do because I, I've been so good with my time and I've balanced things so well. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm just, um, I, I've always set dreams. I, I, every year I'd make a dreams list. I'd break it down into a yearly goals list, break it down to the month, the week, and the day. And uh, I've lived my life that way since I was 18 years old. So I've just been able to achieve an awful lot in the area of myself and my family and work. And um, be because of that, um, and, and, you know, it's ironic, right? Um, only God knows how much time any one of us have. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, you know, certainly uh, recently learned that I wasn't going to have the time that I thought I would. And it's ironic of how m much I valued time my whole life and how, how precious I, I thought it was and how much I've utilized it. So I think that could be something to leave people with too is, you know, I don't think time should ever, ever uh, be taken for granted or wasted. I mean, let's face it, if Warren Buffett and Bill Gates combine their money today, they couldn't buy back that last second, minute, or hour. So in reality, isn't time the most precious commodity in the world? And, and I think what we do with that time distinguishes and separates who we are and distinguishes really our quality of life. Mm. And so, you know, uh, forgive me if, you know, I may be stepping over, but, you know, you'll take the question as you like. So this is going to, you're going to get the a recording of this. And, mm -hmm. you, you know, you said your sons are your, your legacy. Is there anything that you want to, this is going to be memorialized for forever and you can <laughs> give it to them. Is there anything you want to tell them? I love you. Great. Thank you so much for your precious time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at anonaenterprises.com.